those of you guys who have been following, we've been in an eight-week journey through the book of Philippians, and we've been talking about what it means when we place all of our joy, all of our trust, all of our hope in the person of Jesus Christ. For the last few weeks, just as a recap, our first message was what it means to rejoice and the fellowship of the saints. And this is such a key exhortation for us, especially during times like these, when it is not for granted that we can actually meet in this way and gather here as saints. So finding joy in belonging, we find joy in encouragement, we find joy in the challenge in, in gathering uh, with the saints and how important it is for us to remember this, especially during pandemic times, especially during times where it's hard for us to meet. Our second message was rejoicing over afflictions. How, especially in those moments where we are in the midst of suffering, when the world is not as it should be, when plans fall through and tragedy strikes and injustice befalls, in those moments, how powerful it is when the saints rejoice in the midst of their afflictions. Third message was rejoicing in our sanctification. How even as we are walking out our faith with fear and trembling, God gives us joy in our hearts. He gives us confidence in his ability to finish what he started in our lives. The next message was rejoicing the fellowship of Timothy and Epaphroditus. You guys remember those are, uh, especially the name Epaphroditus was probably very new to us. And the whole point of it was God brings people to help us in our moment of need. He makes us helpers in the moment of someone else's need. And God himself is our greatest and ultimate helper. Um, then we went over rejoicing that our hopes are in Jesus. The fact that our hopes aren't tethered on something temporary, something fleeting, something that changes from day to day. But we're able to tether our hopes and our joy in the person of Jesus Christ, what he's done for us and what he continues to do. And then last week, we talked about rejoicing that your citizenship is in heaven. This is a letter that is written to a people. If you guys remember our first message, we talked about what was very particular about the city of Philippi. It is filled with people whose greatest pride and greatest joy is that they are a Roman citizen. They are people who have served in, uh, it served in the military forces for the Roman Empire. And this is where usually they would come and retire for people whose pride and joy is, I got to serve my empire. I got to serve my nation. These are people who take all their pride and all their joy in their citizenship. The apostle Paul calls them to rejoice in a citizenship that is greater, something that defines you even more than the fact that you are a Roman citizen and you are a Roman soldier. You are a citizen of heaven. And so this brings us to today. We're slowly starting to wrap up this sermon series. And so next week will be our last sermon on the series. Today, the call that Apostle Paul brings to mind is rejoice in the Lord always. Now, if this was written by anybody else, you always have these people in your life that kind of exaggerate a little bit. You know, like, I'm not going to name any names. There's a certain person on our staff like when they love something, they're like, oh my gosh, you have to try this Thai place. Like it'll blow your mind. Like you've, you haven't even tasted Thai, and Thai food until you've tasted this place. You have to go. Here's the address. Like call them and make a reservation. We have a certain person on our staff that is like hype man types a million, right? And so if it was written by someone like that, this exhortation to rejoice in the Lord always would feel like an exaggeration. It would feel like, yeah, sure. You know, it sounds a bit redundant. It sounds a little bit cliche, but we're talking about apostle Paul who doesn't spare any words. This is a person who writes what he means. And so when we hear his exhortation to rejoice in the Lord and always when he says always, it's always. It's not sometimes, it's not here and there, it's not sprinkled throughout, it's 
always. And so we're going to be talking about that today. And so if you're with me, let's turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. You can turn in your physical Bible or in, on your phones. We also have some slides that you can read along to as well. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. And I'll be reading from the ESV. The section first starts off, right, with a call to unity and peace in the body of Christ. But it's not based on like, hey, your personalities are different. Come on, you guys got to work this out. This is conflict resolution in the Lord within the body of Christ because we are one in Christ, right? So verse 1, it starts off by saying, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So these are two people who have conflict within their congregation. If you've been in church long enough, you'll always know that there's always going to be conflict. The reason for that is because we're people. Wherever you gather people, there's always going to be conflict, right? There is no conflictless church. And the, the church in Philippi is no exemption to that, right? So he's entreating Euodia and he's entreating Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Make up in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And then in verse four, not as an unrelated topic, but as a culmination of everything he's talked about thus far, this is Apostle Paul's astounding exhortation. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness, other translations say gentleness, Be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. So this is the passage that we'll be working through today. And we've said this often, but I'll say this one more time. Whenever there's repetition in the Bible, you know, right now, whenever we want to emphasize something, we inflect our voice or whenever it's in writing, we'll boldface something, you know, we'll make it, you know, font 18, boldface, underline, italicize. That's what we do, but they don't have that. They don't have that back then. The way for them to emphasize something is actually to repeat it. And so when we see Apostle Paul repeating over and over and over and over 16 times throughout four chapters saying rejoice, we see that Paul is not being repetitive. It's not that he's a bad writer. He's not being repetitive. He's underlining. He's bold-facing. He's putting triple exclamation points on a particular idea, and that is rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it, rejoice. So today we'll be doing something very simple. We'll be examining what rejoice in the Lord always means, and then we'll see what the natural repercussions are of someone who rejoices in the Lord. So rejoice In the Lord, always. Three parts to this. Rejoice, not anywhere, not in anything, in the Lord, and then always. Let me start off with this question for you. And this, I don't know if this is a very normal question to get asked at church. Is God enjoyable to you? Is God 
enjoyable to you? This is a question that actually I was Christian for years. And that question had never been asked to me. Is God enjoyable to you? In my mind, as I grew up, even as I grew up in the church, all my life, I thought about two different camps. Something can be enjoyable, you know, like, like things that are fun, things that you look forward to for the weekend, things that you look forward to for a meal, things that you're looking forward to do, things that are enjoyable, pleasurable, that you can take delight in. And then there's things that are good for you, right? In there, I put like, okay, being godly is in that camp. Um, taking medicine, probably in that camp. It's not enjoyable. You don't do it for pleasure. Who takes medicine for pleasure, right? Mm. <laughs> uh, anyway, <ooh>. right? <laughs> A little disturbing. We'll talk later. Um, so in that camp, it's like, you know, eating vegetables for some people. Like, you don't do it for pleasure. Most people, oh, okay, I don't do it for pleasure. I do it because it's good for me. But it's not like I look forward to having a salad. Like, that's, I just do it because I have to. And so this is not in the same camp as something that's enjoyable. These are two very separate things in my mind. Something, if something's pleasurable, it's probably not good for you. So like cheesecake is in this camp, is usually not in here. And in my mind, God and holiness, godliness was in this camp. It was in the good for you camp, but not really pleasurable, not really enjoyable. And so when this question was posed to me, for me, it was like, uh, no, I don't think God is enjoyable. Is God enjoyable? I don't think God is enjoyable. I think he's good. And I think, you know, following him is right. And I think living a godly life is morally good, but pleasurable, like enjoyable. It doesn't, I, I don't see how those two things, you know, could align. It's two very separate things. Pursuing a life of enjoyment probably means straying away from God in order to follow that. So these are two completely separate things in my mind. The more godly and the more religious or the more serious about God that you got, the more it felt like you had to resign your life to a life that's a little less fun, you know, a little less happy, a little less pleasurable, right? It was like God was the cosmic killjoy. Like he couldn't stand you having fun in life. And that's how it felt for such a long time for me. It was that God was out there to make sure that I wasn't having too much fun, that my life was good and upright, but not really enjoyable. And in my mind, God was just, you know, the more miserable your life is, the more godly it is. That's the way that I equated it in my mind. And maybe if you stick it out, if you, you know, grit your teeth and get through a very difficult and boring and miserable life, maybe at the very end, maybe you'll get a reward for all your sufferings. Did you know that that is not the Christian life that we see described in the Bible? Yes, thank you. Yes, that is actually much closer to other religions that teach you about, you know, denying yourself pleasures, denying yourself your impulses, denying yourself enjoyment in life. And maybe at the very, very end of it, you'll get a reward, but you're not supposed to enjoy this life. And that's what a lot of different religions actually preach. But this is not what our God in our Bible preaches. Did you know we're made, we're designed, we're hardwired to rejoice and to delight. We're wired that way. We're designed intentionally that way. You know, that instinctual way, nobody needs to, you know, when you are in front of a meal that you've been looking forward to all week, nobody tells you like, now act happy and now act like you enjoy it. No, like when it's good, it's very instinctive. No one needs to tell you to enjoy it. You enjoy it. You savor it, right? That same instinctual reaction that we have when we genuinely enjoy something. 
So it could be a really good meal. It could be a really gorgeous sunset. You know, like in Seoul, usually we don't get really good skies all the time. But when we do, it's like really, really gorgeous. Clean air. One of those rare days when we have clean air and a gorgeous sunset. Um, Those times when we have really heartfelt conversations with someone we love. Sometimes it's watching a beautifully filmed movie. We instinctively delight. We revel. We soak in. We savor these things that bring us pleasure. But then when it comes to God, we feel like we cannot put him in that same category. We feel like God is to be revered. He's to be obeyed. He's to be respected, but not enjoyed. And nothing could be further from the truth. The reason we're wired to enjoy and delight and rejoice in God is actually twofold. One, for one, we are created in the image of God. And God is a God who delights. He's a God who rejoices. He's not this like frown faced, you know, God waiting for you to mess up somewhere in heaven. He's a God who gushes over creation. If you guys remember Genesis one, he doesn't just create things and he's like, all right, done next thing. He's a God who at the very end of the day, he saw that it was good. He took a moment to delight in the work of his hands. It means that after he created the birds, he took the time to enjoy a bird's song. Whenever I think about things that, you know, things that are really beautiful to, to the, to the eye or to the ear, it makes me realize that it's a God who believes in beauty, who believes in delighting. Can you imagine birds didn't sound like melodic? They sound like, although some of them do, right? If the world wasn't filled with beauty and it was just filled with functionalism, it would be a very different world. But we see the The delight in God in the way that he created things. We are able to delight because God himself who created us in his image is a God who delights and rejoices. He saw that it was good. He took a step back from his masterpiece. He let his eyes rest on the color of the sunset. He allowed his eyes to savor the, the texture of, I don't know, the fields, you know, in, in, you know, the, the flowers, the way that a fish moves, the way that the water gleams and the sunlight, all of these things he rejoiced over. This is a reason why we instinctively Rejoice and we delight. And second, the reason why we are hardwired to enjoy and delight and rejoice is because it is a mechanism that is inbuilt in us for us to relate to God. It is something that God put in you for you to relate to him. One of the most freeing, like seriously freeing revelations And my journey with God was that I was made to enjoy him. That was such a freeing thing. For many years, I believed that I just have to follow him. I just have to stay in line. I have to be a good person. I have to try to avoid all the really, really bad sins. And that would be a successful Christian life. That's the way that I defined a successful Christian life. But the moment I realized that I was actually made to enjoy God, to find pleasure in God. That was the moment that my spiritual walk was revolutionized. I couldn't sing songs in the same way that I did before. I couldn't relate to the word in the same way that I did before. I couldn't help but to go into the place of prayer because I would be savoring someone that I loved. This idea that I'm not just called to obey and follow and grit my teeth and just try to make the most of it but I was made to enjoy him. That was something that became a primary and central part of my faith. A primary truth that actually fuels my ability to follow him. It ensures my ability to persevere through trials. And it's this idea that you can't deny yourself pleasure for very long. You have to actually replace it with a greater pleasure. So for example, this is an example that we've used before. It's imagine you have to stay away from pizza, right? 
Pizza is not very good for you. I mean, it's really good in other ways, but not good for your body, right? And so if somebody tells you, hey, don't eat pizza, and all you're thinking about is like, don't eat pizza, don't eat pizza, don't eat pizza, don't eat pizza, you're going to be thinking about pizza all the time. You're going to be really miserable. The only way to get you to not eat pizza in a sustainable long-term way is to replace it with a greater pleasure. So like, don't eat pizza, but eat hamburgers, right? It's also not good for you. But the idea is you need to replace it with something that you want more. That is the way that we are hardwired. That's the way that we're designed. So this whole, like, all I need to do is deny myself and then live in this vacuum of desire. That is not a Christian thought. The Christian thought is you deny yourself and you cling on to something that is greater. A delight that is greater, a satisfaction that goes deeper. And that is what Christianity is. It isn't people who are void of desire, that don't know how to take pleasure in life. It's people who have found their pleasure, their desire in something that is even greater. And so this is the way that C.S. Lewis, that he um, words it in his book, The Weight of Glory... He says, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the, word, of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition When infinite joy is offered us, it's like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Whenever we make something lesser, something temporary, maybe something worldly, our delight and our pleasure, what the word is saying is we're settling for too little. You're settling for something so meager, so weak. It's going to satisfy you just temporarily. Like how can you base your whole life and satisfaction on something so fleeting? Can you tether that to something that will not change? Can you anchor your joy? Can you anchor your pleasure, your delight on someone who will not fail you? Because all of us have been through that point in our lives when things that we were banking on, maybe relationships we were banking on, you know, jobs that we were like, man, if only I get that job, I'm going to be happy for the rest of my life. And, you know, we get that job and we're super excited. And then it, it takes like, what, two weeks at most? And then we're like, I hate my job. I hate my boss. And we're so quickly dissatisfied with these temporary things. And we're actually made to be like that. Things will lose that, that delight to us whenever we tether them to something that is fleeting, something that is weak, that ultimately will not satisfy So this is what it means to rejoice, and not just rejoice, but rejoice in the Lord. When things can change in your life, situations and circumstances will change in your life. Even those things that you feel like are ideal in your life right now, they will come and go. People will come and go. Jobs will come and go. The weather, how nice it is, it will come and go. You know, the, the, the state of your family, it'll come and go. The things that you're looking forward to right now, they'll come and go. The only way for us to rejoice in a way that is permanent, in a way that does not change according to how you feel that day, doesn't change according to your circumstances, is when we rejoice in the Lord. That is where we anchor and we take root of our joy. So the only reason why you're able to rejoice always is because it's in the Lord. You can't rejoice in relationships Always, because you go through ups and downs. You can't rejoice in jobs always. It can get, you know, get difficult. You can't rejoice in certain situations in your life always because things can fade, things can break, people can get distant. The one thing you can rejoice in always 
is in the Lord. He never changes. He's always good. He's always faithful. He's always with you. He transcends time and space and the naturally fluctuating circumstances of your life. He supersedes all of that. And so no matter what it is that we go through in life and all of us go through things in our lives, there's always going to be, even when everything is going wrong, even when everything is going wrong, as we see in the book of Job, for example, it was like a triple whammy, right? His, his family got taken away, his riches got taken away, and his health got taken away. Everything that he held dear was taken away. And in that moment, there was only one thing that he could rejoice over. And it says, he turned to the Lord and worshiped him. There's one thing that remains still when everything else was taken away. And that was his joy in the Lord. So let's look again at verses four through seven. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. This, these are words that are written from prison, right? These are words that are risen, uh, written from a place of imprisonment. And he's saying, even now, even as I'm in prison, there's still a reason for me to rejoice. And that is rejoicing in the Lord. He says, let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is near do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God. This peace that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and will guard your minds in Christ Jesus. He's saying once we tap into this ultimate pleasure this ultimate delight, this ultimate rejoicing in the Lord, some really incredible things begin to happen in our lives and in our hearts. There's transformational power as we rejoice in the Lord. Something shifts within us and we begin to see fruit. We're just going to talk about four different things that Paul mentions here. Rejoicing in the Lord, it will lead to, first thing is a gentleness in spirit. When you're not tight-fisted and easily agitated and easily stressed by everything that comes your way, there's moments when I feel like that, when I'm like kind of like kind of tightly wound and I'm like easily kind of agitated and like, oh man, this is one more reason for me to like have a bad day. Like, man, man, I knew that this would happen. I find myself going down like a grumbling, you know, like a spiral of grumbling and complaining when I tap into the ultimate pleasure and delight of rejoicing in God. There is a gentleness that begins to appear in my heart and in my life. And it's not just a, an inner gentleness, according to what Apostle Paul says. It's a gentleness that is actually known by all. It's seen by all. You can actually see it on somebody when this gentleness, uh, when, when somebody is rejoicing in the Lord and this, there's this gentleness in spirit in someone. So this is one of the things that happens when you rejoice in the Lord and you're freed from all this anxiety and all this pressure and all this, you know, striving and earning. And man, I got to prove myself when you, you no longer have to do that. There's a gentleness that begins to rise up in your heart, a gentleness that begins to overflow in your life. And it's known to all people can actually see it in the way that you live your life. Second thing that Paul mentions is there's a thankfulness that begins to show up in our lives. My mom would always say this growing up. She's like, if you complain, there's going to be more things for you to complain about. There's always going to be things for you to complain about. And so I needed to stop complaining and actually begin to give thanks. And for me, that was in the beginning, I was like, well, it's easy for you to say blah, blah, blah. But I began to realize that this is very true in my life. The more I fixate on how things are less than ideal, the more I fixate on things that are wrong, the more I find myself, you know, deprived of even an ability to be thankful, an ability to see the good things in life. And I would find myself going down this route. But when we start rejoicing in the Lord, there's a thankfulness that naturally begins to overflow in our hearts. We stop being anxious. We begin to kind of like open up our hearts and begin to give thanks to God. This happens when we rejoice in him. Third thing that begins to appear in our lives is a prayerfulness. A prayerfulness that begins to show up in our lives. We stop trying to fix it all ourselves. We stop trying to figure things out on our own. We stop stressing over things and getting all bent out of shape and manipulating people and situations around us. 
and we begin to yield to God's hand, we begin to surrender our needs to him. We begin to ask him to fill my needs. We begin to ask him to address the things that are going wrong in my life. We begin to look to him to work all things for our good, for him to lead us in all wisdom, for him to lead us in all truth. There's a thankfulness and a prayerfulness that begins to rise up in our hearts as we rejoice in the Lord. This happens to me so often when there's very genuine things that I worry about. On a daily basis, so many things that could go wrong, so many things that need to be taken care of, so many areas that need so much help, so many things that I see in my life that God needs to, you know, work in. And if I don't turn this into prayer, then it's very natural that I'll begin to get so stressed out, so tightly wound, so unhappy, so ungrateful. So filled with complaining and grumbling, it's so natural that that begins to happen. But the moment I choose to look to him, to delight in him, to remind myself, sometimes I literally out loud will remind myself. I'll have to say, Susie, look, Susie, okay, Susie, the Lord is good. And in this situation, he knows what he's doing. He knows how he's going to provide for you in this area. I literally have to remind myself and then I begin to pray once again. I begin to say, yes. Oh, that's right. You are in control. That's right. You are generous. You're not a stingy God. You're a God who's generous and gives to the overflow. You love to show me mercy. You love to chase me down with your goodness and your grace each and every day. And I begin to delight in him and I begin to bring to him my needs. I begin to bring to him my prayers and my petitions. So we see gentleness, thankfulness, prayerfulness appear in our lives. And lastly, we see peace in our hearts. A peace of mind, a peace of heart that cannot come even if situations were ideal around us. It's a very different kind of peace. It is the peace of of God that has the power to guard your thoughts, the power to guard your emotions. When ordinarily you'd be shaken by something, you'd be thrown back into a place of despair. You'd find yourself walking down a path of discouragement or escalating fear. But as you rejoice in the Lord, there's this peace that transcends all understanding that doesn't make sense. It makes absolutely no sense. It's like ridiculous, this kind of peace that comes when you rejoice in the Lord. When everybody around you is like, hey, shouldn't you be a bit more stressed out right now? Because I'm looking at your life and all these different things are happening in your life. How come, how come you seem unshaken? And that's when it is the peace of the Lord that surpasses understanding. That doesn't make sense in worldly, in worldly ways. A peace of heart, a peace of mind that guards your thoughts, guards your emotions in Christ Jesus. That's what happens when we begin to rejoice in the Lord. And we do it always, especially when it's hard. Especially when you have to like force yourself to get there. Like it's the last thing you want to do. And you choose to rejoice in him always, even then. We'll tap into a peace that is beyond understanding, an incomprehensible peace that will guard our hearts and our minds, that is not based on our own strength, is not tethered to our circumstances, but it is in Christ Jesus. This is what happens when we begin to rejoice in the Lord. I talked about this very briefly the other, um, like a few months ago. I was going through, you know, quite a challenging time. And there are many different needs that, uh, you know, when you do pastoral ministry, there's always going to be needs. There's always an excess of needs. There's always a, 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 a lack of like time, resources, you know, experience, like just everything. There's always a lack and there's always an overflow of need. And over time, this just gets very, very taxing. And it becomes very difficult to like shut off your brain and take a rest. It becomes very difficult to not think about the endless needs that are always there. And I remember, you know, taking a couple of days off and just, you know, okay, these two days, I'm not going to think about ministry. These two days, I'm just going to unwind. I'm going to just shut my brain off. I'm going to do whatever I can to unwind. And I actually found it really, really hard. It's like my, my brain wouldn't stop. 
Like my brain is used to going at a particular pace and it just wouldn't stop. And I found myself like halfway through my quote unquote vacation. And I was like still super stressed. It was, I was just finding different things to stress over. Right. I was like, why is this driver going so slow? And how come this isn't ready? And like, I, I find things to like get stressed over. And I was like, what is going on? Like, chill out, Susie, you're on vacation. Like you have nowhere to rush to. So what if there's a little traffic? Like, gotta chill out. Like you're, you're not late to anything. Can you please like, like, whoa, like calm down, Susie. And I realized that it had less to do with what was actually happening around me. It was just a state of heart. It was a state of mind. I was like constantly like, so like stressed and it would it had become such a natural state of living for me. And I needed to remind myself in that moment that man, even if I were to take a break, even if I were to take a vacation, it's going to be fruitless. It's going to be in vain if I can't rejoice in God, right? Like I could be in an all, you know, all expenses paid, whatever. Like you can fill in the blank. You could be in a Caribbean paradise and you'd still be stressed because it's something that's within your mind and within your heart that can only lift when you begin to rejoice in the Lord. It will only break when you begin to rejoice in him. And so this is what Apostle Paul is calling us to, from prison nonetheless, to rejoice in the Lord always. And when we do that, we're going to see some amazing transformations that happen within us that could not come any other route. How much, hmm, this is not to knock on counseling or anything because I myself had taken counseling as well. People will dish out Hundreds and thousands of dollars to try to gain the sense of peace. You can dish out so much money, endless amounts of money in search for this sense of like, right? Like, okay. Like, I feel like I can breathe again. Like, I feel like I'm not at the mercy of my circumstances. Like, I feel like not even my past, not even my trauma, not even like the things that I've gone through before, like they're not what dictates the state of my heart right now. I feel like I can finally breathe. Like I can catch my breath. Like that. People will pay so much money. People will go above and beyond trying to gain the sense of peace. But my exhortation to all of us today is like, you can find it, first of all, for free. <laughs> you can save yourself a lot of money. You can find it in Christ Jesus in a way that you will not be able to find in any other quick fix. In any other man, if only this panned out. Man, if only this person changed. Man, if only this situation was different. Even if all those things were to change, you still wouldn't. You still wouldn't be able to grab a hold of that kind of peace that transcends all understanding. Unless you begin to rejoice in the Lord. Now I'm going to end with this. In the middle of exhortation, you know, to rejoice, you notice that Paul drops in a seemingly very random point, seemingly very, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's not associated to anything else. And he says, rejoice because the Lord is at hand, right? It's kind of like very random first time I read it, I was like, what does that have to do with anything, right? The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious because the Lord is at hand. Let your gentleness be known to all because the Lord is at hand. And the, the, what it means when we say the Lord is at hand, it can mean two things, actually. One, in a very real sense today, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. The Lord is with us in the midst of every situation, in the middle of every circumstance, even when there's persecution outside, in the case of Philippi, there's persecution outside the church, there's strife and conflict within the church, wherever you look, man, like there's trouble, right? In the midst of that, they find such comfort in knowing, but the Lord is with us, the Lord is near, the Lord is with us right now. He's not far off, he's with us in our struggle. And that makes all the difference. You know, when you're going through something really difficult, 
You know, the night and day difference that it makes when there's one person who walks with you for your struggles. That it doesn't need to be a whole crowd of people. It just needs to be one person who just walks with you through your hardships. And that makes all the difference in the same way. There's such comfort that comes from knowing that the Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. Even when there's persecution outside, even when things aren't ideal within the church, the Lord is at hand. And that's a reason for me to rejoice. There's a nearness in God. That can mean one thing. That's the Lord is at hand. But second thing that it could mean it is that the Lord is coming. The Lord is near. The time is drawing to close. There is no moment to waste. The Lord is near. Before we know it, our lives will be over. Before we know it, Jesus is going to be coming back. There isn't a moment to lose. And this is something that should frame our struggles, should frame our lives in a reason to rejoice because for future challenges, even as we're thinking about, you know, we've been studying the end times, right? Even as we're thinking about the end times, there is one key element. I would say if I have to like boil it down to one thing, there's one key element of preparation. As you think about the end times, there's one weapon you'll need in your arsenal when the time comes that will carry you through the darkest of seasons, that will carry you through sickness, through losing your job, through persecution, through the loss of a loved one. There's one weapon that you'll need in your arsenal, and that is delighting and rejoicing in the Lord. When push comes to shove, and things that you took for granted in life are taken away from you, it's going to take more than just good self-discipline. It's going to take more than just grit. It's going to take more than just, man, I'm just going to push through and I'm going to hope things work out okay. It's going to take more than that. It's actually going to take an ability to rejoice in the Lord, even in your darkest moments. That is what is going to carry you through those moments of darkness. There's such power that comes as you rejoice in the Lord in the middle of the valley of the shadow of death. You know, in Psalm 23, it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even though, even in those moments, God is there with you, his staff and his rod, they comfort him. God is near in those moments of suffering. God is near when life isn't as it should be. And the fact that God is coming and he's coming back, and that is closer than we think. The time is near Even through those sufferings that will happen as that time draws near, especially because of that, we need to learn to rejoice in God. If we don't learn it now, we won't be able to practice it later. Now is the time for us to learn to delight in the Lord, to savor God's goodness, to taste and see, not just hypothesize, not just you know, abstractly think if it's good, like actually taste and see that he is good today. He'll be good tomorrow. He'll be good the day after that, because this is a letter that isn't this abstract disembodied theologizing or philosophizing about spiritual truths. It's not divorced or detached from reality and practicality. This is a letter written by Paul in the grind, in the suffering, in the troubles of life, when there's persecution, when there's conflict, when there's so many reasons to be anxious. And Paul's very practical, very down-to-earth, very for-the-average-believer exhortation is rejoice in the Lord. When things aren't going your way, rejoice in the Lord. When people are coming after your life, rejoice in the Lord. Learn to rejoice in the Lord and you will see gentleness, thankfulness, prayerfulness, and a peace that will not be taken away, that cannot be stolen by any circumstance. It doesn't belong to anybody else. It is yours to keep a peace that transcends all understanding. You'll see those things. Guard your heart. Guide your mind. Guard your emotions in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The reason why he's able to say this is because he knows more than anyone else, life isn't easy. 
Life isn't ideal. It's not a walk in the park. He's able to say this because he's been down in the pits of darkness. He's seen despair and suffering up close. He's experienced abandonment and betrayal and injustice and persecution firsthand. And from that place, he testifies there's a joy that cannot be stolen. There is a peace that cannot be taken away. There's a joy that cannot be quenched, that cannot be stamped out. And that is a joy in the Lord. So this is my exhortation for us today, New Philly. We are a church that is named after a church, a church in Revelations 4. It's a small but mighty church. A church that perseveres through persecution, perseveres through hardships. It's a church that is resilient, that stands the tests of time, that, that it stands against the attacks of the enemy. It's a church that doesn't have it easy, actually, but they persevere. And I tell you that I sincerely believe that the most crucial deciding deciding factor for whether you're going to make it out okay is whether you're able to rejoice in the Lord. I will bet my life that if we were to see the church of Philadelphia from Revelations 4, we would learn that it's not just a small and persevering church. It's probably a really joyful church. A church that is able to rejoice in the midst of sufferings. That is still so in love with God, so confident in his goodness and his provision because they've been through the worst of it and they've come out the other side knowing that he's good more than ever before, more convinced than ever before. They're not relying on their self-discipline. They're not relying even in their endurance. What is in grit is their ability to delight in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. That's when you see your relationship with him turning from functional to actually awe, to worship, to overflow. That's when things change in a relationship with God, when it is no longer just, man, I just got to be good. I just got to obey. I just hope that I do well and I don't fall into really bad sin. And it becomes a life of enjoyment. It becomes a life of delighting where you don't feel like you're missing out because you found greater pleasure greater joy, greater satisfaction in someone that will not fail you in someone that is not just, you know, wishy-washy here today, but gone tomorrow, someone that will remain with you, somebody that will not fail you, who's faithful to the end. So we learn to savor and treasure his presence. We learn to delight in him, to take time to delight in him for us to untether our joy and our happiness from the things that so quickly change and anchor them in he who will not change. Let's pray together. I'm going to ask the praise team to come up. Father, we thank you, God, that you have designed it in such a way. You've designed it in such a way that we don't have to choose delight and pleasure or goodness. We don't have to pick between one or the other. But you say that you are ultimately the best thing that we could pursue in our lives. That there is nothing that compares to you. There's no joy that this world could offer us that is greater than the joy that we can find in you. You've rigged it this way. You've designed it this way for us to find our deepest longing satisfied in the one who created us that way. You're a God that with every situation and every circumstance, you invite us. You invite us closer. You invite us to draw nearer to you. To bring our lack and bring our weakness and bring our dissatisfaction, bring all those things before you that we might be filled in you. You're the God who says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. If you're anxious, come to me. If you're, if you're burdened by life, come to me. If you feel like you're poor in spirit, come to me. If you have nothing to offer, come to me. And I will give you rest. I will give you peace. I will satisfy the desires of your heart. I will be a God who will prove to you that there is a satisfaction, a peace, a delight that goes beyond the temporary things. I am a God who can fill every one of those needs. I'm a God who 
is everything that you really need. And so we hear that invitation from you today. You're not saying, just look on the bright side is not as bad as you think it is. You're telling us, just bring me your weakness. Bring me your emptiness. Bring me your lack. Bring me your shortcomings. Come to me and be filled. Come to me and you'll find satisfaction that cannot be found in anything else in this world. So we hear that invitation. And we ask God that you would teach us how to delight in you. In moments where we forget that you are God who is good, who's merciful, who's compassionate, who's forgiving, a God who brings healing to our lives, a God who brings abundance into our lives, a God who exceeds our expectations. When we forget, God, would you help us fix our eyes on you? Would you remind us, God, of the kind of God that you are, the kind of Father that you are, the kind of Savior and Lord that you are? And as we fix our eyes on you, may thankfulness, may worship arise from our hearts. May there be a peace that transcends all understanding that begins to fall all around us. May there be a joy that springs up from within us, even in the midst of difficult circumstances, as we fix our eyes on you. We were made for this. And you're a God who delights and eagerly meets us in that place of need and of hunger. We thank you, Father. We trust in what you're doing in our lives. Some of us are going through some very difficult challenges in our lives things that are very difficult to bear. And so we say that we bring those things to you, God, knowing, God, that we cannot carry this on our own, knowing that we weren't made to walk through this on our own. And we ask you, Father, that we be walking with you, that your nearness, the fact that the Lord is at hand, that would be felt, that that would be experienced. We thank you, Father. You are sufficient for us. You are enough. You are more than we could ever ask for or imagine. You are a God who meets our every need, a God who overflows our cup. We thank you, God. We love you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Could we rise to our feet as we end today's service?